if I told you back in 2019, hey, Moise, let's go disrupt apparel and create a new t-shirt brand. You might give me a laugh and say, like, I actually got some better projects in mind. And really, we're able to do that and, and grow to nine figures in two short years profitably. And when you really think about that, it's one of those unheard of D2C success stories of like, how do you bootstrap a brand in 2019 and cross nine figures in two years profitably in a commoditized space? This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. Limited Supply listeners should think about adding a mobile app to their marketing mix. Mobile apps can be customized by Tapcard, and they can improve your retention strategy and make your customers stickier. And it'll provide a really smooth way for customers to shop online, and it's the best way to engage customers wherever they are. Limited Supply listeners can get two months free at tapcard.com slash limited. All right, guys, we are back for season two, episode 11. This is the eve of the end of the season. So I'm extremely excited. Today, we have a very special guest, this guy named Ben. We're going to learn all about him. Moise, I did all the research. I didn't share any of it with you because just witnessing both of your guys' conversation and Austin in person, I think um, you're going to have a bunch of questions that pop up that you know, you'll find similarities between your journey at Native and Ben's journey with True Classic. And so I have a ton of research and I'm super pumped to get into it. But first off, Ben, welcome to Limited Supply. We're honored to have you and grateful that you could spend some time with us. Yeah, thank you guys. I'm super happy to be here. I'm a big fan. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about True Classic Tees? Like, you know, when did you guys launch? I'd love to get into the numbers as well, Nick. You've known Ben, I think, for some time. Ben, you and I met a month ago at the Whaley's uh, for a hot second. Would love to get a little bit more background for me and for all of our listeners of like what True Classic is. Shortly after, what is it, like summer of 2019, uh, three founders here, Ryan, Matt, and Nick, came up with that idea of let's completely redefine what the True Classic t-shirt would look like on a guy. And what we, what we meant by that is, can we find or can we come up with the best fitting shirt that's super comfortable and offer it for a really accessible price point? And the purpose was pretty simple. We want to make everybody look good and feel good. That's it. No like fluff beyond that, right? And if you think about guys, not too many brands out there really go out of their ways to make them look good and feel good and, and make it kind of like known and make it accessible for all. So... A lot of R&D went into that initial skew. We killed it. It was just an amazing product market fit. People started raving about it. And what happened since then is that we expanded this business insanely fast across three key dimensions, product, market, and channel. If you think about product, we moved from true classic tees to true classic and launched about 15 different categories because the belief was what we did for guys with shirts can be done with jeans and activewear and chinos and jackets, right? Like let's apply that same mentality and expand our product portfolio and help them look good and feel good across whatever it is that they may need and be able to complete their wardrobe. I'm even wearing our hoodie right now, which I wear pretty much every day now that LA is rainy. The second is the market. And the idea was what we sold for in America for the US customer is not a local problem. It's a global problem. And when you look at TAM for apparel, the global TAM is four times as large as the US. So we said, let's take that true classic magic and expand globally. And now we're like in 190 markets worldwide and international is about 25, 30% of the business. And the third is channel. And the idea was if we are successful with our website on Shopify, where else can or should we be? And the idea is that we want to be wherever the customer might be. So we launched an app and on Facebook and Instagram shops and on Amazon and open our own five retail locations. And we're looking into other opportunities like other marketplaces, wholesale. And if you think about what we do fundamentally is we solve for those problems. We advertise really aggressively on all the channels you would suspect, Meta, TikTok, Google, YouTube. And we basically are continuously casting a wider net to find that customer wherever they may be with this like channel expansion strategy. So what we've been able to do is bootstrap this brand into a pretty commoditized space, like apparel, right? If I told you back in 2019, hey, Moise, let's go disrupt apparel and create a new t-shirt brand. You might give me a laugh and say, like, I actually got some better projects in mind. <laughs> and 
And really, we're able to do that and, and grow to nine figures in two short years profitably. And when you really think about that, it's one of those unheard of D2C success stories of like, how do you bootstrap a brand in 2019 and cross nine figures in two years profitably in a commoditized space, which is just such a, such a story of ours that I'm just super, super proud of. And I'm happy to dive into more of like how we went about it, kind of like tactically. I know the audience here always looks for nuggets on like what to do next or where we find success. So I'm an open book and I'm happily sharing always with other operators, what works for us. I think you guys are the fastest growing direct consumer brand ever. You launched in 2019, and I believe you have a valuation currently of 700 million, bootstrapped and profitable. First year you did 15 million, second year you did 90 million, third year you did 150 million in revenue. A lot of people think that it takes a lot of capital to start a business. What was the $3,000 used for? And you said that that you did a ton of R&D. So like, how much did the R&D cost? Where did the $3,000 come from? What was everybody that you had three, there was three people who started it. What did those three people do? I believe you were at Facebook at the time, right? At the right, Disruptors yeah. program. So, right. you know, like- Whoa, what, yeah. there we go. Oh yeah. Disruptor, okay. Ben, ben was a part of the special forces at Facebook. <laughs> Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's the, that's where I'm happy to dive into that, Nick. Yeah. I would love to know the answer to that. Yeah, of course. So first thing first about the disruptors group, it's interesting because when you think about meta, the way I frame the story over there is there's over about what, 3.5 billion users worldwide and about 200 million or so businesses out of those 200 million businesses, which is almost every business in the world, there's only 330 million of them, about 10 million advertise with paid. And that is a very, very long tail, right? So you start all the way with like the Amazon of the world and you go all the way down to the mom and pop shop who might do a $5 a day campaign. And what the, the Disruptors Group does is every year they circle the cohort of about 80 or 90 brands or companies that have both the, the highest potential for growth and ability to grow. Potential being market opportunity, TAM, spend, success to date, CAC, all those things. Ability being maybe having kind of like the, the right team in place, the right leadership in place, the right product market fit, right? And what we do is we work with them and we give them a lot of, it's almost like the meta incubator. We give them a lot of resources, measurement, creative, technology, guidance, partners to invest more in them so they can grow as a business and in return invest more with meta. What that experience allowed me to really understand is the insane potential on how fast and how far you can take a company and how quickly you can do that when you're successful on the back of those platforms. And a lot of people out there are saying, Meta, Meta doesn't work anymore, right? It's iOS 14, it's dead. And, and people blame a lot of different problems on kind of like outer issues, right? And they don't look inside. And what we did here is said, look, if we solve a problem that's big enough and we have a real product market fit, this is how we're gonna scale. And so I consulted the guys from the early days on kind of like how to turn that magic into reality with growth marketing. And the initial R&D piece, I mean, it was, I believe $3,000, that's the story. And it was really just to develop that initial skew. And when Ryan, who's kind of like the main founder here, started the company, he thought, maybe we just even go black and white, just as classic and basic as it gets. A crew neck t-shirt, black and white, but the best one in the world, like nobody, with more thought, energy, and yeah, thought is, is the right word, thoughtfulness into it, right? And really asking themselves, like, what does it mean to create the perfect issue in the world? And what do guys want? They want comfort, feel, right? Like the fabrication to be really soft, and they want fit. They want it to be tight around their arms and, and chest and looser around their torso. And so the initial work was, let's find the best, basically manufacturer, the apparel manufacturer, to work with us on developing that initial skew. We worked out terms that were really favorable in terms of like, when did we need to pay back to them, right? I believe it was either net 60 or net 45 from when we get the product. So that helps you float, find kind of cash flow forward. And we had the initial skews and it wasn't like, you know, the first few months were in the tens of thousands of dollars. It was really not, taking off. And then we had like a month, I think two or three months in where it was like $50,000. And everybody was like, well, 
this starts feeling like a proven concept here. We're not just talking about an idea. There's there there's just clear product market fit, and you know nothing shows you that better than sales and how people react and your reviews and whether they return their product or not. And what are the comments? When you read this commentary, people rave about this brand. This is like people go out of their mind saying, this is like changing my life. I've never felt so good. Like females commenting on their significant other saying like, my husband was never more confident. Like he just loves the way these t-shirts make them, make him look, right? And you start realizing, wow, we're really onto something here. And when you think about how you roll this forward, most brands, or not most, but it used to be the case, feel like there was this notion of like growth at all costs, right? All Silicon Valley wanted to see your VCs or whatever, right? It was just top line and then just nail that and then everything else will, that revenue is king, it will cure it all. We never had that approach over here. Like this has to be born as a real business, sustainable business, profitable from day one. We're not taking this approach of like spend just for the sake of spend and kind of like false these numbers to make you feel like you're growing a company. And so we were laser focused on pretty simple metrics like ROAS and really proving to ourselves like how many dollars do we make back for every dollar we're spending and how can we scale that machine and leaning into really solid analytics and understanding our P&L deep, not just revenue, deep like what's the payment processing fees and fulfillment costs and expected returns exchanges and their cost and obviously the product costs and outbound shipping and fulfillment, things like that. And really getting an understanding of like incrementally, where are we at on this gross profit or contribution profit for every dollar we spend? And we started just big on Meta. And Meta or Facebook, as I would forever call it, it was just an insanely scalable machine. And because we have such a big TAM, mind you, we're still just a, a guy's product from an assortment perspective. We don't offer anything for females, but we have a very sizable female audience. And what that allows you to do, and, and she buys for you know her husband, her boyfriend, her dad, her nephew, because she loves it, right? And if you think about females, nobody wants their guys to look better and feel better than their females, right? Who take care of us all, right? I can tell you my wife is definitely the one who makes the shopping for me, and I love her for that, because I actually don't want to do it myself, and she's just doing a much better job. And what it allows you to do in Meta specifically, and where this comes full circle, is to advertise super broad because you have a product that technically can serve anybody, whether it's directly for them or they buy for their significant other. So even if you think about as we were scaling and issues like iOS 14 or privacy changes, we were really benefiting from velocity and having a lot of volume of data and having this like flow back to fuel those campaigns and find additional audiences that would uh, resonate with the brand. And we also just really benefited from the community. We built like an insane community. We have over 2.5 million customers now who rave about this brand and want anything to do with True Classic and how can they get more of it? So that goes back to kind of like if you do this right. Ben, uh, really what I'm curious about is like double clicking into year three, which is 2022 revenue. You did $150 million dollars bootstrapped and profit, like, you know, that's an insane achievement for anybody, uh, certainly for a brand that's been around for three years. It's incredible. You're one of the rare operators that has a ton of advertising experience and maybe less operating experience, right? Having been a disruptor at Facebook. I'd love to understand what what is the marketing budget that it takes to get to 150 million a year? Is Meta or is Facebook the uh, backbone of that or are there other engines? And the reason I ask this is because so so often I talk to brands and they're like, YouTube is our number one engine or YouTube is our, the backbone of our marketing spend and it blows my mind. What is the backbone of yours and what does the marketing budget look like? The backbone is Meta, always has been, but I would say it varies, right? There's months where we it was maybe closer to like 50% and there are months where it's closer to 80% and then there's times where let's just say Cyber 5 where nothing scales like Meta during Cyber 5. Cyber 5 is like Black Friday to Monday. Black Friday, to Cyber, Monday. Cyber Monday, yeah. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Turkey 5, Cyber 5, however we call yeah, that. And sure. so we look at it as like, we don't have a marketing budget to answer your question. I'm gonna tell you, I'm happy to go through numbers. And how we look at it is we have constraints that are around efficiency and business, right? And the two that I always reference are performance and inventory. And under those constraints, I want to maximize scale. And so right now we are uh, almost thinking about it as like efficiency ultimately is 
to us like our profitability gauge, right? Like we need to maintain certain level of profitability. And when we, what, when we look at acquisition, what we do is we look at, I know a lot of people look at either CAC or they look at ROAS. I'm looking at profit per new customer. And what I take into that equation is everything. So I look at, as I mentioned, contribution margin, essentially on that initial order, stripping out everything, including stuff that people don't see right away. Like what's the expected return on the cost? What's the expected exchange of the cost? How many tickets is going to generate per order? How, how expensive are those when it comes to CX? Like everything you know about your variable cost, factor that in. Net, net, how many dollars are you left in there in contribution profit? Wow. Right? And then say, how much am I spending on advertising? And net, net, where does that land, right? Ideally, and there are many months where we're able to do that, we want this to break even. And when it breaks even, we feel really good because I would spend into that equation all day long because I know what the repeat would look like once those cohorts are coming through. And so I look at it as like acquisition is the growth, repeat is the profit. And how should I balance the two? There is certain months where, and this has to do with inventory, you have to the other point. If we're higher on inventory, we may say like, let's, let's like allow ourselves a little bit more room, a little bit more of a deficit on, you know, maybe we lose a few bucks per customer and when are we gonna get paid back? And then how are we gonna net net for the year? So even if you think about a year like that, in January and February, maybe going more aggressively for trying to blend the 2023 numbers, which might be short-term negative on EBITDA for acquisition, long-term in the year, you're gonna net up positively. So it goes back to pretty basic math and you get better at it as you grow because you have more data around your cohorts analysis. And we look at it as when people say LTV, I'm just looking at it as cumulative gross profit per customer. And we start potentially at zero. If we think about the gross profit versus CAC, that's break even or a few dollars below. If I'm higher, I actually want to spend more. I'm like, guys, we're not spending nearly enough, right? Like we need to reinvest that and, and keep growing. Basically, what you're saying is you're ready to break even on first customer on first order at any time always and say, hey, we got this customer. He's now a member of the true classic community. You're even willing to lose a couple dollars uh, based on the idea that you understand your cohorts well enough and say, OK, this will become profitable later on. When you're calculating profitability, I feel like most people will take into account gross. Pro most people will take into account cogs, shipping and advertising. You're going a level deeper and saying even what is the cost of this going to in terms of returns and customer service costs, and you're going to bake that into it as well. And so you're taking a very uh, fully loaded view, or you're taking a fully loaded view when it comes to uh, customer acquisition cost or contribute whatever you want to call it in order to break even. It's like a profitable ROAS. Yeah, if that's the case, what is like um, new customer versus returning customer revenue look like? You know, so uh, it'll vary, but let's say last year. Is half your revenue, is seven, let's say uh, it was 150 million, is 75 million new customer, is 100 million new customer, is 50 million new customer? It, it's about two thirds, uh, a third, two thirds new, a third repeat. Then we are kind of like pushing it forward. And so if we are successful with acquisition, we may blend the repeat percent lower, but it's not necessarily negative. And that's why I like the cohorts view, because if you don't look out of cohorts, percentages are very misleading, right? Any operator would agree with me on that. And so we look at it, at, again, from this like cohort's health and understanding how that trends. And we try to think about everything as a function of its time. And so if you think about growth marketing with this company, within this company, there's two things. The efficiency constraint is like, how much can I allow you right now to invest into a new customer? Ideally, the goal remains break even. And under that constraint, how can you keep finding new ways to scale it higher and higher and higher and higher? And how you do that is, you find breakthroughs, you find creative breakthroughs, you find technology breakthroughs, you find landing page breakthroughs with, with Nick and others, right? On the hooks or whatever. You find, you name it, breakthrough that keep allowing you to bend the curve and you just become, going back to the initial point, you just become incrementally a tad more efficient. You just did something and it just improved that. And now all of a sudden you can acquire a handful of more customers keeping your efficiency constraint in mind. That's the approach we're taking. Uh, here's a game I want to play, which is, okay, Nick, you and I both understand that, let's say Ben's new customer last year was $100 million, okay? And Ben, you just, you don't, uh, you get to uh, be the judge, actually. Nick, what do you think the uh, marketing budget was for that $100 million in customer acquisition? And I'm also going to guess, and I'm going to write it down on a sheet of paper so you know I don't uh, 
change my answer later on. $100 million in customer acquisition in apparel, and his goal is to be break-even. My guess is $80 million. Okay, so, okay, wow, that's way higher than mine. Mine is $57 million, which I put right over here. Ben, who's closer? You, uh, Moise. Um, okay. It landed between 50 and 60, I want to say. Okay, so if uh, we're playing Price is Right rules, if we're playing Price is Right rules, we both lost. Yeah, but how did did you get to 57? Nick, you fucking great question asker. (laughs) Uh, Here's how I got to it. Okay, he's doing 100 million in revenue, okay? And it's in apparel, which, you know, his prices are very reasonable. It's not like, you know, one of these uh, Mack Weldon clothing things where a boxer costs $45 for one pair. You can buy three joggers at $40 a piece. In fact, while we've been chatting, I bought three joggers at $45. I bought a five, $40 a piece, actually. And so, you know, I was like, okay, let's say uh, he probably has like 70% gross profit, 80% gross profit margins, I'd say. Somewhere around, uh, let's say 80%, 20% is COGS. And then I'm going to say, okay, another 15% is shipping, somewhere around there. So I'm throwing in 35% there. So of the $100 million, I say, okay, he's got $65 million in profit, uh, maybe a little bit less because there's you know some customer service costs and stuff that he's baking in. And then I say, okay, the rest, he's ready to break even. At first, I wrote $51 million, And then I was like, you know what? He's ready to break even. And so I'm going to raise it to 57. And that's how I got to it. It's it's so hey, dude. Your math is so close. It's like amazing. You're you're a genius. Obviously, <laughs> I'm um, doing this. You know. You know what's the other thing that's really interesting, Moyes? And I think people who do surveys really get a clear view there, or run things like marketing mix modeling. Is like we run advertising just for acquisition. We we tested a little bit of like remarketing. It just gets too cost prohibitive, too expensive. The return isn't exactly there. But even though you're thinking about it in the shape of CAC. And that's the reason I am okay with break-even. Indirectly, you are driving repeat behavior. Even though you're thinking you're excluding your existing purchases for, or purchasers or customers from everywhere, there is still leakage because there isn't 100% match rate and people might still get your advertising or someone may get the advertising and tell a friend and they are coming and buying. And so what you start realizing is when we ask people like, what? so we have two questions after the purchase. One is if, you're a first-time customer, where did you first hear about us? Is a lot of what people ask, and we list all the channels. If you're a repeat customer, we ask you, what drove you to the site today? And you realize that many, many people still name Facebook and Instagram, and like a real significant portion of that. So it will be silly to not account for the fact that something in repeat, while people like to think is not related to advertising, is because advertising keeps you relevant. It keeps you top of mind. You keep hitting those people, whether you intend to or not, and you keep your name out there. And so we're trying to think about it in two lenses of if I break even an acquisition, I'm making some other impact on the rest of the business by driving some additional repeat. And the efficiency constraint is if I truly break even an acquisition, that's like a fantastic outcome because to me, even though it's a big expense right now and it hits your eats into your EBITDA, I think people are, should almost think about advertising spend as an asset that should leave somewhere on your balance sheet, right? Customers, yeah. emails, SMSs, you name it. You get assets that have residual value in them and you're not monetizing them all on day one. And so if you really think about long-term and you start reverse engineering, like where do I need to monetize this brand? Where is my exit strategy? It's right. not like any other expense on the PL. This is you investing in your brand. And there is a lot of value created there that, again, to me, is like a balance sheet asset that needs to be flashed out through the PL over a much longer period of time. And I'm happy to go deeper into that, but I think it's some piece that, uh, that many operators just don't fully think through or don't go deep enough to dictate the right strategy and amounts of money they're investing in their brands. You're basically saying, hey, every email address is basically an ask that should live on my balance sheet and not just my income statement. Like, so I've got email addresses of 2.5 million people. Obviously, that's like some intangible. Let me ask one crazy question. Do you ascribe a certain value per email? Like, let's say you get a new customer on your balance sheet. You're like, no, 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 no. I mean, it's not, you know, 
Yeah, that's was gap yeah. gap compliant or whatever yeah, they kind no, of rules are. I'm, yeah, I'm not talking like, about gap compliant. I'm talking but, about like you know, yeah. Out. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, right? And here's like a quick answers, right? Because if you look in Clavio, I but okay. So this is me, and this is my DNA. I'm incredibly, incredibly analytical, and everything we do, I just think about like the input and the output. What's the value? Where are we netting, right? So everything we do. So if you think about emails and SMSs. I hate Clavio because it's like, what, I mean, I love Clavio for the technology. I hate it for actually understanding like, how valuable is that email lead? Well, I don't, like, there's nowhere to find, right? Any information on that value. And people think, oh, my welcome flow is 30% of my revenue. But hold on a second. Is it revenue from Clavio or is it revenue from the traffic? And how should you think about it? So what we do at the highest level, and I think that would be a nice tidbit for anybody who's doing email SMSs, is we look at basically different types of customers that we have. Customers that don't have any email or SMS customers that we do have their email, customers that we do have their SMS, and customers that we have both their email and SMS. And what we say is, which is a little bit of a high-level ballpark assumption, the delta on the average customer between those we have their email or not is what we should quote-unquote attribute to the value creation of our email program alone. Similar idea to SMS, similar idea to both. And that's not uh, attribution policies. And we cannot argue back and forth about like, you know, last click, last touch, deserve credit, don't deserve credit. That's like actuals. And then I'm trying to go back and think through, okay, what's my opt-in rate? How many of those do I get? How much can I monetize those people, right? So I'm trying to just continuously refine my math. And it's not perfect. Every day we get it better and we get it closer and we run more tests and we try to figure it out. And and refine and refine and refine. But you need to be relentless on your math, relentless on your analytics, relentless on understanding what it is you're getting for what you're paying. And until you quantify it all, you can be confident that you're making the right investment decisions because you don't fully understand your return. Sure, if you, sure. You know? And that's kind of like the, the approach over here. First, I fully agree. I think everybody focuses, uh, everybody who launches a brand focuses a bit too much on how it looks versus the actual bottom line. And I think that's a just a great reminder to always look. One thing I wanted to go into, so 150 million in sales in three years is crazy. Starting this whole thing with three grand is crazy. But how did you use three grand to place purchase orders and fund ad spend? Tactically, what did you do to do that whole thing? And also to make sure that you're not getting money from basically a shark with a very high APR or very high percentage that you have to pay back. Yeah, Nick. So we used Wayflyer. I want to say there may have been a different debt provider earlier on, but we have been with Wayflyer for, for quite some time now. And the idea was to raise debt rather than equity. And the idea there was if we run this business responsibly and we are investing just the right amount, and account, again, we account for interest. We account for interest on the debt. We account for everything we do. Again, Did every- we put the interest in that profitable ROAS number as well? Yes, on inventory piece, yes. Got yes. it. And so we try to think through, like even another thing that people don't do, and I'm trying to always get closer to is creative cost. People just look at it as almost like OPEX. It's not OPEX. It's variable if you're using it to run your ads. And the more you can actually break away those fixed cost and actually figure out what are they varying by. Even if it's fixed, it should hit a certain bucket, right? The better math you can kind of like do and ultimately financial decisions you can make. It was kind of like terms from the manufacturer, right? And then debt line from a finance provider uh, with a reasonable interest rate. Now that becomes a lot more expensive. So we keep thinking about, you know, ways to lower that. But at a high level, it's a really great way for founders who are looking to not necessarily give a lot of equity to kickstart their brand to really consider debt as, a, as an alternative. And so are you considering an equity raise now like because variable rates have gotten so high? It's interesting. You're right. And we are considering both at, at all times. But uh, to Nick's initial point, what we're after is a premium valuation because we think that we have a gem of a company that's going to go really far and has been on an unbelievable trajectory that literally hasn't been seen in the D2C landscape, or maybe it's been seen by a few that I'm still searching. And so it's, it ultimately goes against valuation, but the power there more is, is if you operate profitably, you are at nobody's mercy. 
you can call the shots. Where do all the people who struggle right now are? They, they, they're not profitable as brands. So it's like, you know, someone has you hide the balls. Sorry. That's just the reality of it, you know? One other question is uh, initially as, as you guys were finding product market fit, testing different products, like what, what was that process? How did you set up ads for that? What was the metric you looked at for like a metrics of to say, okay, this is something that has product market fit. What was that number you look at? And then secondly, what is the pro as target for you? What, what number, how much do you spend in Facebook and what do you look to make out of that? I guess it would be break even, but like, what's your goal target out of that? It's interesting. So everybody, anybody who is listening to kind of like the, the, this podcast, the world of measurement is a very, very involved one. And not because it's super complicated, because it's just a lot of people, they think that they're being data-driven by looking at some numbers, but they don't actually understand what it is that they're looking at. And that is a very big problem in the industry. Because if you think about ROAS, right? Even our friends at Triple Whale or Northbeam or whatever MTA are using, if you just follow any sort of metric and you just try to, let's say, advertise, naturally you will see things like branded search have very high ROAS and other things like TikTok or YouTube having really low ROAS. And the not so sophisticated operator might say like, why don't you take all your money and put it towards those high ROAS campaigns? And don't you try to drive a better ROAS? And then you start actually explaining this concept of incrementality. And it's not about what you see on the surface, but it's truly about for every dollar, extra dollar I'm putting into something, how many extra dollars do I get back? Right? That's kind of like what this is about. So how we go about it is a bunch of different tools, like surveys, like marketing mix models, like running leaf studies, which is still perhaps from a precision perspective is, or accuracy perspective, the best way you can do it is, is like how you test for drugs. Hold out a group, do not advertise to them. See what happens there. See what happens to the group you did advertise. What is the delta? And try to go back and create statistically relevant, significant, powered, whatever you want to define, analysis that tells you are you over-investing or under-investing, right? And so going back to kind of those initial targets, I won't tell you that like we had the, you know, from day one, all our numbers together. We're still figuring out, right? Like as we grow, we just get better and better analysis and, and financial uh, reporting, right? But the highest level was like, can we get over two? Can we get over 2x? And with our profile, we should be good, right? In terms of like, Margin profile. That was going to get over two X ROAS. Is that what? Is that what? Over two X ROAS. Over two X. This was the initial yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the initial one. But nowadays, what we do is we have very different targets for very different tactics because we calibrate them against this idea of incrementality. And because certain things are a lot less incremental, I'll give you a number numerical example for branded search. We need over fifteen X ROAS. I'm not spending a dollar more so long as it's not at least at 15. Frankly, I don't even know if you need to spend on branded search to begin with, but that's a, for another, another conversation. But like, and, and you know, some people will tell you, but you have to protect your keywords. You have to protect your brand. You have to be there. It's a tax. It's a Google tax. I'm like, well, show me why. I'm not doing anything without this why, right? Show me the, the numerical financial analysis on why you need to do something. Because without that, we don't move. And that is the scrutiny we put on everything. Nick, I know we always harp on how important it is to optimize your mobile experience. Two months after a streetwear brand Rip and Dip launched their app, total sales increased by 53.2% and then another 43% the next month. App users have proven they're more diehard fans. They have higher conversion rates, a higher revenue per session. They're more likely to convert, have more lifetime value versus mobile and desktop web. Limited supply listeners can get two months free at tapcart.com slash limited. One thing that you mentioned was the impact of different channels. On YouTube, you guys have millions of views behind 30-second commercials, two-minute commercials. They're also not your typical direct-to-consumer brand-style video. Could you talk a bit about what the YouTube strategy is? Like, how impactful is YouTube compared to a channel like Google Shopping or Meta in terms of, you know, does it tap into new audiences? Does it bring higher LTV? Does it bring higher UPT? What does YouTube do? So YouTube is actually one of the more challenging channels to crack, I would think. 
And the reason it's more challenging, maybe TikTok too, is because the creative bar is a lot higher. And most brands are not that good when it comes to creative. And it's honestly one of our superpowers is just truly amazing creative and content. And that's one of the biggest strengths that our founder Ryan has. He is just a creative genius and a huge reason why we were able to grow so fast and, and get momentum is like how we speak to our customers. And so if you think about the, the YouTube strategy, it's interesting, like, you know, even, even those notions you hear out there is like, it's all, there is no attention, like attention spend is at all time low and it's always about short form content and get it right in the first, forget three seconds, one first second. I'm not taking away from that, but if you do content well, you can actually get a lot of interest and sometimes even convert better with longer form content. It really just has to do with less of the rules of thumb and more about your particular brand, your particular story, and can you make something that is like worthy of watching, right? Most recently I saw the liquid death example of the the grandmas like rocking and rolling. And I was just thinking like, it's just genius, right? It's so different. You can't help but notice that. And when you see that, you realize, you know, creativity is really underrated, but it's one of the most important pieces of, of growing anything these days is like literally be creative. It's so important that I coined it as one of our core values, a true classic. And we don't just talk about creative being ad creative, but just think outside the box, be different, be resourceful, right? Specifically bringing this full circle to YouTube, the increment, the on surface row is, is decimal. Like it's 0 0.0 something, I don't know, like so low, most people will just shut it down. But we run an incrementality study again, and we did it with measure, and we do it with, with the survey. And we see that actually many, many people attribute their sales to YouTube and actually talk to people. And every time I talk to someone, I was like, have you heard about True Classic? And they say, yes. I'm like, how did you hear about us? And you start realizing about those people on YouTube. And I'm asking them, so when you started the YouTube ad, like, well, what did you do? And they were like, um, nothing, just continue to whatever. And then I later went and bought it or a month, or whatever the case might be. If you create great content, it sticks to memory and you need to give yourself time to really understand the value of that engagement, not within a day, but over a longer period of time. Also, another really key question to ask your audience is not how, but when did you first hear about us? Very insightful question. And a lot of brands make the quick assumption of it's about AOV, low AOV, low consideration, no time, they do it the same day. High AOV, long consideration, they need five months to research before they're going to choose their mortgage or mattress company or whatever. It's not always like that. Some people make decisions really quickly on big purchases and their impulse, the other way around as well. We see a lot of people who have known about us for a long time and then they come back, make their purchase and you ask, and then you start cross tab and see, what do I see about when by how? Like is YouTube longer period versus TikTok shorter? Like, you know, and so we start actually mapping those channels. And specifically for YouTube, we calibrate by the survey on a day-to-day -day basis. We try to do an implied ROAS based on survey responses. And what I mean by that is if you were to attribute your entire world of new customers based on what they tell you of where they first heard about you, and you were to kind of like attribute that way the revenue, can I get an attribution to the channel that is over 2.1 we're looking for on YouTube? And then we do those measured studies. Measured is a partner that we use for incrementality and we do geo Shout out groups. to Trevor. Shout out to Trevor. And we triangulate. And then frankly, we we are very happy even with a very small ROAS because YouTube is not a very clicky channel. And those MTAs break when there are no clicks because nobody has it together when it comes to like identity matching and persistent ideas and all of that. You were talking about um, how important creative is and how... You know, Ryan's got uh, is like a creative genius when it comes to understanding what customers want to see or what resonates with people. Are you handling that creative in house or not? Like, are you doing YouTube videos in house? Do you hire agency? Do you do in house and agency? How do you think about that? And then, how do you think about your budget towards creating video as opposed to, you know, you were talking about profitable ROAS and sort of building in the cost of a customer service experience. Do you also build in the cost of making the creative? Yeah, absolutely. And yes, we do. And we try to get better at that because it's a tricky one because all of a sudden you're like, oh, someone forgot to account for the content and doesn't show on the platform. And as you can imagine, that's a fixed cost and it's variable based on how much you spend. So if the creative scales, it becomes meaningless. But if the creative doesn't scale, it becomes really expensive. 
And so you have to make some scale assumptions on like how much you can spend behind it if it's worth the money, right? It's a little bit of a different methodology. So it sounds like you guys are doing it in-house though. We do all of the above. So we do in-house. We do a lot of UGC and influencers and whitelisting. We do bigger agencies like Tube Science and Narrative that are, have, have their model around pay by performance. We do other types of agencies like 99 ads or or quick frame. We had a few others. We, we constantly have people. And then we have uh, bigger creators that we had a lot of success with. Uh, like the ones you mentioned, I think you saw it with a brand pretty uh, frequently is Greg Tube. And they've been with us since kind of like early days. And they make those really funny, edgy ads that are just crushing it for us, you know? And when you really think about the why, it's ultimately about consumer psychology. And it's ultimately about do you really understand your customer? Who they are, what they want, what they feel, what they want to feel, what their problems, what you're trying to solve for, how do you talk about that, right? And most brands, when I see not so great marketing teams are stuck in their own marketing heads and they have opinion around how an ad should look like and is it elevated enough and is it on brand? We took a very different approach. We're like, we're not a marketing, marketing org. We are a real kind of like human to human authentic connection. Let's be funny. Let's be edgy, but let's make sure we hit on the key points and let's see if we can build that relatability with our audience. And that's what resonates because it's so different, right? Like I think Nick mentioned that. And I don't think any other t-shirt brand talks or, or apparel brand talks about their products the way we do, at least not that I see, right? So I think we're really blazing our own trail here, if you will. From, and, and truly differentiating ourselves. And I think it's a huge a huge component and we constantly try to kind of think about that next piece of video. From a budget perspective, I'll just leave it with, the more we believe it's gonna work, the happier we are to spend more of it. And we try to prove ourselves out. So before we sign a larger thing, we wanna see, is that creator any good? Let's yeah. do some small whitelisting. Let's do yeah. some basic stuff, right? And so, so we work our way in it, but the more confidence we have, behind, we have behind the creator and the content and the fact that it's going to perform, the happier we would be to cut a bigger check. Let me ask you another question. If you're sort of, you're managing $55 million in spend, let's say, what's the team that's required to do that? Some agency, some in-house, some whitelisting, you know, how big is the marketing team? Not big enough. In general, by the way, one thing I would tell you, which might be also insightful for people, is that my hiring philosophy is whenever, and I'm going to jump into the particular growth marketing question is whenever there is a business need that is not met, the first thing we should do is can we solve for that with technology? Can we solve for that with a SaaS partner? If not, it, can we solve for that with an agency? Essentially like outsourced by default. If not, is there a consultant or, or a freelancer? And if we not, nothing, everything fails, let's go and hire. And the reason is we go fast. We go really, really fast. And hiring is slow. Hiring is painful. You sometimes, unfortunately, make hiring mistakes and it takes a real big toll. So we have gone through different variations of the structure around that. But I'm a huge believer in two buckets that need a lot of investment in. Analytics, which to me is strategy, and creative, which to me is execution. Those are the areas you should invest in, period, right? And so... We have a director of analytics in-house. I, I also, myself, am kind of like relatively analytical. We have partners like Measured or Way or Northbeam, and we kind of like work with them all, and we just continuously putting more pressure or no commerce for the survey, uh, continuously putting more pressure on the analytics out of the house to make sure we make solid decisions. And then creatively, we have the in-house and everything we talked about with external agencies. Now, I believe that if you have solid strategy that is driven by solid analytics and you have great creative, that magic that people used to see of like, I'm the best media buyer in the world is overrated. So if creative is underrated, media buying is overrated. And the way this industry is moving is a lot towards kind of like automation. And you see that with Meta's ASC or Advantage, Shop, Advantage Plus shopping campaigns. And you see it with Performance Max with uh, Google and TikTok now just launched their own version of it. And so sure. it's like, so we have a very lean team on that re in that regard. We are working with the main agency, have a new VP of growth. It's starting next week. I hired her from Meta as well, which I'm very excited about. Okay. And yeah, we have an influencers leader. We have an analytics leader. 
And we have a few people on the creative team with a creative visual leader and a creative copywriting leader. And then we supplement with a lot of uh, freelancers, consultants, agencies as needed. Gotcha. But very lean and single percent on OPEX last year on the entire PNL, right? Like we're very, very lean and we are lean by intentionally. So at the end of every interview, Ben, we, uh, with, a, it's, uh, you know, somebody like yourself, we always ask a bunch of rapid fire questions. And so I want to get to those. But before I do, I have one question, which was, you know, while we were chatting, I was like, okay, I'm going to go purchase a bunch of true classic teas. And I did do that. But first I was like, okay, you're in LA. I'm sort of in LA right now. Let me go down to the store on Abbott Kinney and purchase some. And then I was like, cause I know you guys have some stores. And then I was like, okay, they don't have a store in Abbott Kinney. Where is it in LA? And then I was like, Okay, there's they have two. They have you guys have five stores. Two are in Chicago. One is in Tyson's Corner, and then like you know, two are in California. Zero in San Francisco. Zero in LA. Though, who's deciding where to put these stores? Like Tyson's Corner is not where I would have expected store number five, and two in Chicago also seems surprising to me. Yeah, so I'm happy to dive into retail strategy, but we do have those five, and there is one in uh, in Del Amo in the mall. I guess you may consider that LA, maybe not. Yeah, kind of like fair enough. Like maybe Orange County, I don't know. The way we go about that is, if you want to talk about kind of like retail uh, uh, location selection is, first we just made a decision to move into retail with a test, which was those five stores. And the idea was like, there's a lot of people who still buy apparel offline, actually over 65% of people. And so we were like, let's let's test this out. And when you try to pick up retail, instead of going, let's go prime, locations, right? If you think about the retail ROAS, one of the key things we tried to manage for is OPEX. And we tried to really think through what is the, like literally the ROAS there is like, how can we essentially break even within the four walls knowing that there is online impact beyond that? And so when we talked about um, retail location selection, we looked at our concentration of our own customers. We do have a lot of customers in Chicago. We actually have a lot of customers around every one of those stores. It's not those are all highly indexing cities for True Classic, which is a big indicator for us on where to pick the right stores. And then we looked at the OPEX from a real estate perspective. We found a partner similar to everything else we do. So in this case, we went with someone called Leap and they helped us de-risk the engagement. They put money into the build. They hire the GCs. They do the build. They actually own the, the lease. They hire the staff, right? And we have relatively short-term commitments if we wanted to get out of it. And I just hired a new head of retail who comes to us from Antakit, who led retail over there. And I'm very excited about him. And the idea is that can we prove out retail on a five-store scale and then scale it to the moon, right? Like that is how we go about things. It's less going back to your point, Moise. Most brands would say, let's start with flagship, whatever, retail locations, New York City, like, I mean, we're not like that. We're like, where does it make sense financially to start? And then let's move on to the bigger opportunities. I love it. It's you're zigging when everyone's zagging. On the retail though, quickly, like how do you measure success or how do you say this is a test that is successful? Is it is it a threshold of revenue per store visitor? Is that something you track? And also actually on that note, what kind of analytics do you look at for retail? Because, you know, there's no like Google Analytics, but... Do you have cameras, people walking in? Are you seeing what people are put, picking up? How often something's getting picked up versus put back on a shelf versus taken to a fitting room and check out? Like, is there funnels you can build in retail like that? So music to my ears and something I've been requesting since day one. So I, 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 we are, it's a work in progress, but there are cameras like that. They can track a lot of different things and ultimately build the funnel inside the retail location. I mean, there is... A handful of things here. One, from a financial perspective, similar to everything else we do, if I were happy to break even on customers, I'm actually also happy to break even on my store. And the reason is there is much broader impact here. And the broader impact is harder to measure, but things like people walk by the store, There's it's a billboard, but it's a shoppable one. It's like almost the best version you can do as a brand, apparel brand, is to be out there in front of people. So if you can be out there in front of people and break even in-store on your operations, that's a win. Right. There's also a lot of customers who may not shop for like your brand. Like, let's just give you an example. Like if you are like this, like sensory shopper, right? And sensory shopper to me is the, is the person who goes down the aisle and opens up the shampoo bottle to sniff and see if they like it, right? Like they need to feel it, sense it, try it. 
And I tell you all day, Nick, this is the best T-shirt. It's going to fit you so perfect. You say like, it, it, you won't even say, it's like, I need to try it. I still need to see it for myself. I don't, I don't believe it, right? I don't trust. Yeah. And now you actually have the opportunity to convert them. And so what we try to really get to is like, if we were to break even in store, we believe that it's positive for sure on the business from an ROI perspective. And what does it take to get there? We also know that there is omni-channel environment, right? So I mentioned to you the survey questions. I have people who shop for the first time online and when I ask them, how did they first hear about us? They say retail, right? And vice versa, by the way, we do service both ways. So I'm trying to actually understand, okay, and if someone started in retail, do they then keep going and purchasing online, right? So there's a lot of learning to be made, but that is kind of like what we said, like, look, anything we believe in, if we at least can prove it's breaking even, we're happy with because we know there is a lot of residual value that we can't put our finger on. So it's out there, but we would feel a lot more comfortable with it. So that's kind of like the threshold we made for ourselves. And we do a lot of like things that are also kind of different, I think. Things like we have this, like, uh, like we have those games that we put in front of the stores and we ask people, oh, whatever, it could be spin the wheel. Now we're trying to, to bring retro games where people just get reasons to go and we'll give them, honestly, just surprise and delight. Here, come in, take free shirts, like, come in, like get a, whatever, 50% off like jeans, right? And honestly, we do this without even the ROI in mind. We do that because we want to show up to customers. We have those poker chips. I think maybe I gave you guys those at, in, in, in Austin or we just get, give people random, random people store credit. It can be the Uber ride. It can be the, the cashier at the grocery store. We just go ahead, try our brand. Like we don't even care to track if you were happy with it, but because we really want to do this, like look good, feel good, give back. And be just a different positive brand out there in the world. So we, we try all sorts of things like that. Okay. That's a great answer. Uh, one, I did not get a poker chip. Nick, did you get a poker chip? I didn't know. Okay. Well, we didn't get poker chips. But shop, tech, case, shop tech it is. But it was a really cool. Fantastic. Poker chips and there's like a unique promo code. And it will have be loaded with like 100 bucks to the store or something like that. So I'll, I'll make sure I'm, I'm bringing you. I'm bringing you some. I'm going to slip it in and see if Cosmo will take that poker chip. <laughs> Quickly get murdered. Um, but okay, a bunch of rapid fire questions. Let me start. Uh, okay. Um, one, what is your favorite true classic product? Underwear. Boxers, like box men's boxers. Okay, gotcha. The best unsung hero we got. And if you are listening to this podcast, go check out those underwear. You will never go back. It's amazing. Okay, for what it's worth, it, while we were shopping, I literally bought a pair of boxers as well. And I have, I've tried Mac, you know, what I wish that existed was a box where you could get one pair from, you know, if you're a random consumer, one pair from Mac Weldon, one pair from True Classic, one pair from The Big Favor, one pair from Hanes, and then get like a $100 credit at whichever one you want to go buy a ton from. Because I'm always like, I don't like these for some reason or another, but okay, boxers, I'm excited to get it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great idea. What's the best way for somebody to get into the disruptors program? Ooh, spend a lot of money and know the right people. Are there tricks? Like from what I remember, because I was a part of it for a couple of years, what I remember hearing was it's a quarter over quarter increase is, is the number that's looked at the most. Are there any specific things that somebody should work toward to try to get into that program? It's hard to get in. Because as you can imagine, just from a stats perspective, I think when I put it back in the dead in one of those slides, which is like you have three times the chance to be struck by a lightning than to get into the disruptors group. When you put the stats together, it's like that kind of stats, you know, it's like really, really selective. And when you think about what goes into it, yeah, it's like, look, I'm talking about 80 or 90 companies out of 10 plus million advertisers. You know, it's like a very small chunk. It's a combination of things, definitely to spend, but it has to be kind of like at a certain level. I want to say they won't take you if you don't spend at least, I don't know, at least a million dollar a quarter, at least, probably a few. And the growth there and how rapidly did you grow? How much buzz is there around you in notoriety as a brand? Like, do they believe that you are going places or not? Do they believe they can help you? Do they believe you're seeing sustainable success? If you're spending a lot of money, but your CAC is through the roof and they do the back of the envelope math, that Moist did and like, mm, this company is not sustainable. They may not pick you because it's like, you know, non-sustainable companies can only run for so long. They want to invest in sustainable growth. And so things of that nature. And ultimately also, do they believe that they can help you? If I, Because ultimately, if you think about it from their perspective and what's in it for them, 
is if you, if they see your brand and they believe like by giving this guy, like they're doing great, by giving these guys wide glove service, creative measurement, technology, opportunities, partnerships, whatever, we can bend their growth curve like significantly and therefore sharpen our revenue. Though the, I mean, it's a revenue-driven decision ultimately on their side, right? So those are some nuggets, but definitely try to know the right people to at least be more seriously considered, but uh, it's a pretty rigorous process. For what it's worth, I tried to get into uh, disruptors at Native, you know, every quarter, you know, m- most quarters they denied its existence. They're like, we've never heard of this program. <laughs> it seems like merchants have heard of it. How come you the first rule about Fight Club? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, they were like, no. And then they're like, you're in it. And I was like, no, I'm not. You, got, you crazy guys. And then they're like, we're not going to let you in it. That was the evolution. of that. Oh, wow. Well, we need to talk about that too, but you're not you're not with Native anymore, right? I'm not with Native anymore. Yeah, oh, no, so. no. The next one, boys, we'll 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 talk about that. Okay, I'd love that. Uh, what percentage of customers return their orders? I'm always curious in apparel brands what percentage you should expect as returns. And I mean, it's hard because of fit and everything. Can, can you ballpark that for me? It's interesting. Uh, it's a really good question. We had a really low single digit on our core product, being kind of like the shirts, and then you have new categories that we're doing. Let's say chinos or denim and bottoms in general where we get a higher percent return rate and i think it has to do with sizing especially selling online and so what we're trying to really do if you think about why people return the i don't know overwhelming percent call it 89 whatever a really high percent is like it's the size right too big too small fit this way fit that way that's what they're after so this is kind of like blended is like single digit for us which i actually think is low compared to average and i think it's because we take fit so seriously you know wow we put fit calculators on site and we really do and i believe excellent job it's one of our big product differentiators fitting a bunch of different body sizes and doing a good job there and so under 10 percent is what you're saying under 10 yeah and then i would say that um it's interesting to think through what you can kind of like do about that with kind of like different different types of strategies to try and mitigate some of it it can be like how can you turn a return into an exchange how can you improve that size fitting on sa- on the site, right? Like, can you do a better calculator? Can you leverage AR? Can you like, I don't know, do something to minimize some of those mistakes, right? Because it's costly, as you can imagine, with shipping both ways. If you were to basically package this whole playbook from the last few years, turn it into a textbook and, you know, get this whole thing as a book, and you were starting a business, what business would you start outside of apparel? Like, where do you see this playbook able to be leveraged in a very similar way? Maybe not the exact same level of growth, but kind of similar levels of growth. One thing that I learned is blue ocean strategy, right? Like go into large temps because what you fundamentally, or what I fundamentally believe is that we're really good at what we're doing and we're standing a decent chance at winning. So if you go after a big opportunity, you're likely going to succeed. Even if you're not going to be the best, you're going to be pretty good in in those larger times, right? I would steer clear of niches, not because you can't make a great niche work, but it's because it's a lot less scalable on this new day and age where privacy and regulations is all over the place and it just becomes cost prohibitive, right? A lot of those niche brands cannot advertise effectively on Meta, let's just say as an example, because of those issues, right? So it just becomes really hard to succeed. So I would say broad TAM. Second is go into an area where you feel like there is an underserved audience, right? If we think about what we did with guys is like, if you look at in apparel, even though it's, there's many of them out there, who set to themselves to create a company to make all guys look good and feel good, right? I mean, literally, I don't know of another. And who took that approach of full inclusivity? We go up to 3XL. Now we're developing a 4XL. We really take larger guys very seriously and try to develop something awesome for them. Because nobody else does. So go into an area where you're like, wow, this audience, first of all, it's a massive time. Second is like completely underserved. And I'm not talking about rocket science here. I'm talking about like literally any product that that is out there that's needed uh, that you feel like there is an easy way for you to make a better product. And to me, product is the absolute foundation. And then the marketing part, right? Which to me, no matter where you go, this marketing piece, if I were to give people quick playbook, right? There's only a handful of areas that you need to be really dang good at. It's your ads, it's your website and landing pages, and it's your email and SMS. That's like the absolute core. If you do those things really, really well, 
you're already ahead of the game of many, many other brands. And don't try to, even when you think about ads, right? Like think, start with meta, then go into everything else. If you think about, you know, your website, start with like a great landing page and a great PDP and a great checkout experience, right? Like you don't need to optimize every single thing. Even things like homepage, people think, well, it's my brand. I'm like, I'm not saying the homepage is not important. It is, but start with where you get the traffic from and like optimize there before you go into kind of like the wrong areas. And email and SMS, start with just setting up a great welcome flow. How many people don't even give enough? I start with putting a great pop-up to get an opt-in rate, right? Like, and get those leads in so you can monetize them. It sounds obvious, but what I see is a lot of distraction and lack of focus on the areas that really, really matter. And you cannot obsess over those things enough. And so if you put the, all your energy and effort in the most impactful areas, yes, you may have some areas, and we do too, that are not that great, but you have the 80, 20% rule working in your favor. When I was purchasing, there was a pop-up, a, a post-purchase upsell. Two, in fact. One for a shirt, and I think one for a pair of boxers. What's the opt-in rate for that? Um, I want to say it's like a single digit kind of like conversion rate. The interesting thing over there and the way I look at it is that it's very profitable revenue. Oh, yeah. Because I already have everything incurred, like whatever it is, the, the cost on the ads, the, the fulfillment is just another peak, right? Like it's very profitable. And what it allows us to do is increase penetration. We're trying to think about how can I sell you on another cat? Can I throw in something extra? So you now experience my underwear and you're like, yeah. dude, this is actually I came for a shirt and this underwear is great. I'm hooked, right? So it's almost like a retention play and we're trying to penetrate new categories. Love it. Love it. I can see Moise drooling from here about the post-purchase upsell. <laughs> it's it's worth I saw that and I was like, oh, it looks so good. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> absolutely obvious. I think I did, per I did per purchase a pair of boxer briefs and then it did upsell me another pair of boxer briefs. So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, I was curious to see what it was. And then I actually, the first one I saw and I was like, okay, nice. And then I saw the second one and I was like, get the fuck out of here too? <laughs> we do have we do have a funnel there too. Yeah, we do. Shout out to AfterSale who has done a great job there. And we're also working with Rebuy because now they have like AI driven post-purchase sale. And I think in general, AI, if I were to give another piece of advice, is like stay close to this because it's freaking insane and going to completely change the game. I think it's a major disruption in it for a positive way for e-com brands and how to operate more efficiently and more successfully or effectively. Awesome. And uh, last question. I know we're running quite over time, so thank you, Ben. From a customer service standpoint, you're selling to guys. You're selling to bros, right? What is the number one insight, tip, tactic, thing that surprised you on the customer service side of things for True Classic? I would say like what we tell our 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 customer service team is to provide the Ritz Carlton experience, which I think also, by the way, perhaps is not typical because most people just look at customer experiences like we're just going to minimize that cost. They may let their CFO kind of like rule it and you don't give them the return. It's out of the policy. Like we play no rules. Like you come to us, we make you happy. We make you so happy. We go well above and beyond. We learned that by the way, you are pregnant. We send you a, a, like a maternity leave package, just surprisingly light because why not? And what, what surprised us is what an amazing experience with customer service can do to a customer. When someone really over delivers, when you reach out and you expect to be frustrated, you expect to hear a bunch of no's and, and, and long lead, like time and People don't understand you. And someone just says like, I got you, Nick. Whatever you need, man, you're covered. How can I make your day better? How can I put a smile on your face? The lasting impact on those customers is just beyond. Do you have a quantifiable number, like a multiplier of people who experience a bad order and they come through customer service? We honestly have the best customer service in the world. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like on the e-com side, at least I think, like we just go so deep with them. We take it so seriously. My leader there, VP of CX, Brianna, is just phenomenal. And we really take care of these people. And you see the, the CSAT, I think it's north of 95%. And people who come in really angry leave raving, saying this is the best customer experience I've ever had. Like I, I, You guys are just crushing it. And they will tweet on you. And they will drop things on reviews. And they will just really make people feel like we got them. And that's really important because you know what we are... 
dealing with online is a trust deficit. And you need to figure out how to make them trust you. Trust that your product is good. Trust that if it's not good, you're going to you know, take care of them and you're going to give them what they need. And so we believe that it starts with, if you reach out to our customer service team, we, you want to know that there is a brand here. And you think about big ones. We've done it. I mentioned Ritz Carlton, Amex, uh, whatever, Nordstrom, you name it. There's good examples out there for brands who just puts customer service to be a core strategic pillar of who they are. And that's who we want to be because one of our other core values is lead with empathy and put the customer first. We obsess over our customers. We want to make sure that they they become you know the best ambassadors. And I think that's how you build a community by showing to those people that you truly care. And by that, I mean, literally Ryan sometimes will jump on tickets or someone will complain or whatever. And he's like sending CX to like send, send them just a bunch of free shirts. They're like, this is the vibe here. It's not that those areas when it's human to human are not ROI oriented. They are like, we're here to make you happy, whatever that takes. That's awesome. I feel like I could talk to you for another six hours. That was fantastic. This is probably one of my favorite. I, I, yeah, this might be my favorite episode. Rarely do we get people who are as intelligent and sophisticated and open and able to distill things in a very consumable way as the last 80 minutes that we've been sitting here. So really, really grateful for Awesome, guys. I appreciate it. I have I love those conversations and this is awesome. Let's uh let's do more. Yeah. Well, let's have some of the shop talk. <laughs> yeah, let's do it, buddy. All right, Ben. Thank you so much for spending the last almost hour and a half. This is definitely probably one of my favorite podcasts we've done. I'm excited. I I'm gonna go find something based on everything. I took notes. I'm gonna go find a product based on the framework that you built here. And uh, I'm going to see how fast I can scale this. I love uh, it. Moise, Moise's brain is definitely cooking ideas. Really, There's no I way really appreciate Moise heard all this and said, I'm not going to go try to figure something <laughs> out right after this. <laughs> you know, uh, rarely do we find, do we hear the level of sophistication distilled in a way that's consumable? And rarely do we hear somebody who's been at such a successful business talk about it so openly so really appreciate your honesty and also really appreciate like, you know, um, sometimes I always struggle with our podcast, whether we talk strategy and direct to consumer in general or whether we talked about tactics. And I feel like this is one of the rare conversations where we went through it all. And yeah, we got everything. I think this might be my favorite episode. Thanks so much for spending the last 90 minutes with us. Of course, the pleasure is all mine. And I would say that uh, in the in the spirit of underrated items, tactics are underrated. Right? Definitely. People love talking strategy but they don't realize that the power comes from tactical yeah. execution. Yeah, that's why I was like, hey, what is the opt-in rate on that uh, post-purchase survey or post-purchase yeah. survey? Yeah, it's, it all comes back to that because you know you, the impact you make is from, from taking action, which is another thing we're really big on, which is very, very, very biased towards action. Guys, this was awesome. Looking forward to being invited back and thank you for having me and hope that the audience loves uh, or honestly just able to take some some great action based on those insights. I'm super Thanks again, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. All right. See you later. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 